It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings, all. And I want to take a minute to say thanks to everyone who's tuned in and enjoyed our programs over the past several weeks. A tip of the cap, uh, a proverbial twist of the wrench, blip of the throttle maybe, to listeners in Portland and Seattle, Washington, Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, Wellington, New Zealand, Denver, Colorado, as well as San Antonio and Lubbock, Texas. All of you are among the top 10 cities that have tuned in over the past few months, so thanks. Want to remind everyone, if you're so inclined, please be sure to rate and review, especially if you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast format. Your comments and reviews on the podcast platforms will help keep us going. Also, you can contact us directly via email, The address is airheads, that's plural, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Love to hear from you. We know this program has listeners across the globe, and we're actively seeking out guests outside of the U.S. to add some perspective and insight from the international community, so stay tuned on that. Also, we've been hearing a lot from folks wanting some tech tips and some tech talk Uh, on some different items. So that is something we're efforting on in future episodes. So once again, stay tuned for that. And finally, one more thing before we dig into this week's guest, stay tuned at the end of this program for a special bonus song uh, from our man behind our theme music, Jimbo Mathis. A lot of you probably know copyright and music licensing can be a big deal in the podcast space. So we want to say thanks to Jimbo for letting us dig into his archive for our theme song and for a little bonus track at the end of this week's show. If you like what you hear, you can let them know. Check them out online at therealjimbomathis.com. Now on to the show. Airhead enthusiasts are intimately familiar with the name Snowbum and his creation, the BMW Motorcycle Tech website. The site is a vast collection of common and esoteric airhead information, as well as a repository for Snowbum's musings on any number of topics. There's a lot to get into this week, so let's get right in. It's Robert Fleischer, a.k.a. Snowbum, on the Airhead 247 Podcast. We're on the line with Robert Fleischer. Most people know him as Snowbum, and let's just dig into it right here, uh, right off the bat. Tell me your introduction to Airhead Motorcycles, uh, and I know this can also include the Slash 2 Series, but what was it uh, that got you interested in these bikes right off the bat? Well, that's a really good question, and I've asked myself that a number of times. And I think, to tell the truth... It was because they were different and because they had a, a 
being Germanic, and I'm German, but more than anything else, it was because they had a reputation of being reliable. When I got into motorcycles, you were always constantly tinkering with them. Uh, the English ones would fall apart, uh, and things would fall on the wayside, and they'd vibrate to death and so on. BMWs were reliable. That's definitely one of the hallmarks of the brand. So for you, uh, I'm assuming it wasn't a Type 247 Airhead. That was your first introduction uh, to BMWs. What was it? No, it wasn't. Uh, actually, uh, I have owned a number of BMWs, and uh, <laughs> I guess the very first one I had was a 1940 model R51. <laughs> I even remember the serial number of that thing. What, what was it? Uh, yeah, it's a BMW, and it, uh, I took it to vintage rallies, and I had it when I worked at uh, the BMW dealership, and I had it and uh, rode it around until I sold it, but I didn't uh, put very many miles on it, and... Uh, I think I kept that in my collection until 1981, and I had bought it a very long time ago. I don't remember what year. Then I had some R60s and R69S, and it, uh, let's see, there were four bikes that were the pre-Slash pre 5s, and then I got in Slash 5s and uh, the more modern airheads that we call airheads, and I never looked back. So you mentioned some of the British bikes uh, of the era, and I know looking over your website and some of your bio, you owned uh, and raced a number of those uh, as well. And of course, you mentioned your draw and allure to, uh, to the BMW was the reliability, uh, and you know you weren't tinkering on it as much. What were some of the other things, uh, your impressions of the bike at the time compared to what you and your and your friends were riding? Well, none of my friends had BMWs, that's for sure. What really impressed me about the BMW was that instead of just doing one or two things sort of good or excellently, BMWs did sort of moderately well on everything and excellently well on maintenance. And I found that very attractive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. Uh, you th you think about uh, a typical sort of airhead bike, uh, and for most people, no, it's not high performance. Um, you know, there are other aspects of it that uh, you compare with other bikes where it may fall short, but that's a really good way of sort of rounding it out to say that Yes, it does just about everything really, uh, does everything moderately well or passable, as you say, uh, but the overall package is what made it appealing. So for folks who might not know the history or significance of the Slash 5 series, just talk a little bit about how sort of dramatically different that was from the prior Slash 2 series and what it did to bring BMW motorcycles into the quote-unquote modern era of the time. Well, there are a number of things that, that they did, but the uh, primary things I guess that most people would uh, want to know about is that the crankshaft and camshaft relationship on the earlier bikes was not the best. Um, the 
camshaft was uh, located where it wouldn't get uh, to, the oiling was not real good. And so they swapped positions. And then they also took the uh, rear suspension and they put dual shocks and a swing arm back there. And uh, most people know that on the early bikes, there were some that were made with conventional telescopics. And there were also some made with what we call an Earl's fork, which uh, is a different type of front suspension. You can get them on the same bike, depending on what you ordered. And But those are the primary changes. Uh, there were a lot, uh, uh, quite a lot of small changes. And of course, the engine castings were completely new. And uh, those were the basic changes, I would say, that people would uh, know about or want to know about. Yeah, that and uh, changing over to the 12-volt electrical system uh, was, a, oh, yeah. was a big upgrade, too. Uh, it was a big upgrade, but it was <laughs> it was the most problem-laden <laughs> system uh, uh, when I was doing work for other dealerships, uh, uh, sort of under the counter, as we called it. I would travel to other dealerships and fix problems that they had. Invariably, it was electrics, and it was that charging system. But uh, it all got fixed. Yeah, well, and for those who don't know, I mean, that's uh, a lot of your professional background was in electronics. I remember, I think I was talking with Ted Porter recently. Uh, he told me one of the big foibles he noted uh, on the early Slash 5s uh, was the fact that there were no fuses. People would crash, uh, and there was no fuse for the brake light if they crashed on that side, on the right side, I guess it were, uh, the whole wiring harness or much of the wiring harness could get uh, toasted as a result of something like that. Yeah, there were some of them that, let's just say they burned down. Is that <laughs> There weren't any fuses. That's true. And uh, in the middle of production of the, uh, the Slash 5, which uh, ended in 1973, uh, they did put two fuses in the bike that covered just about everything you need to have covered. And uh, that stopped that problem. There was one other problem that uh, probably I should mention. Uh, there was a reputation for the early bike, the early fast Slash 5, that is, all the early Slash 5, for having some instability problems. And let's just call it that some of them would go into speed wobbles if you were going fast enough uh, and carrying the wrong type of load, and I'll explain that in a minute, uh, these things could get into wobbles that were uncontrollable, at least as far as the rider was concerned who was not cognizant that this could happen. And BMW solved that problem for the most part by lengthening the drive shaft. They welded in a piece on the drive shaft and changed the rear uh, structure a bit so that the wheelbase was a little bit longer, and that solved the problem. The problem that was mostly being caused by excessive loads back of the rear axle, you know, you know rearward of the rear axle, and particularly uh, people that put fairings that were mounted to the front fork rather than the, the frame of the bike on. The bikes could get quite uh, a bit of, un <laughs> it's called, they were, uh, 
they would not be so stable if you got them up around 80, 85, 90 miles an hour, and they would do it. So that was that was solved. BMW made changes, as you probably know, uh, every year. We kept those bikes in production for a long, long time. They did, yeah. And getting back to the short wheelbase, I mean, you do bring up a couple of really good points there. Uh, the fairing, notwithstanding, BMW bikes, I think, at the time, uh, then, maybe even prior to, and of course going forward, were used by a lot of guys for touring. And as you mentioned, an improperly loaded bike. I mean, you can imagine, uh, I'm assuming back in those days, we didn't have the most appropriate gear to pack things, uh, the saddlebags and whatnot. So uh, sometimes guys would probably have backpacks and sleeping bags and, uh, you know, 12 packs of beer just tied in bungee cord to the back of the bike, which didn't help the stability a lot. Yeah, you were absolutely right. It's not just the weight. It's also the size, the mm-hmm. mass uh, of things on the back. That, that didn't help at all. Uh, they were surprisingly stable if you had a passenger, okay, but uh, there are limits. And uh, the uh, I happen to like how the short wheelbase handles. I think it handles better, but... That's me. <laughs> yeah, and you'll hear you'll hear that from a lot of guys. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, riding the twisties, so to speak, or you know, doing some spirited riding. Uh, some folks prefer uh, a finely tuned short wheelbase for that particular reason. Yes, and uh, some improvements can be made by uh, changing the rear shocks and doing a little twiddling on the inside of the front. Sh- a suspension, and uh, they could be made to handle rather well, even on a racetrack. Uh, people would uh, look at that, oh, that old BMW is up here, it's not going to do anything good against my Triumph or my BSA, and then they got, and you would dust on by them. <laughs> that was always fun for racers. <laughs> yeah, I've seen there's a, um, a bike builder uh, in Japan, um, he goes by the moniker 46 works i think is the name of his shop but he does uh vintage racing and a lot of the bikes he uses for the for the vintage races are bmws and guzzies and the majority of them are short wheelbase bikes i think for the that exact reason yeah um go ahead one of the one of the bmws that i thought right out of the box handled rather well was uh the later model which i called an r80 st and uh, it was a nice model, and uh, it was produced very roughly the same time the first GS. Uh, and I'm sure you know about this, that bike changed. That <laughs> GS changed motorcycling. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we'll dig into that a little bit more. And yeah, let uh, a little sidetrack there on the ST. You know, uh, I've never owned one. I do own a uh, early '80s GS, but uh, I've often heard. Uh, from riders who own those or who have owned them, that the ST uh, is just one of the more more spectacular handling bikes uh, of the airhead run. And I guess that has to do with just the really sweet combination of the frame. Uh, You had a smaller front wheel, a couple inches smaller than a GS. Uh, The engine size sort of balanced right, and they really apparently got, got that right. Yeah, it was a fun bike to uh, 
drive I put a number of miles on. I never actually owned one of those, but uh, I, I wasn't married at the time, and uh, I uh, rode the pants off of one for a while when I was uh, fixing one up for uh, my gal friend. She had one of those. She also had a... a uh, a uh, R65, but that was that's later history. Yeah, that, that's a little bit later in the run. Before we move on uh, to a, a couple other topics, I want to backtrack and uh, get out the weed whacker and just ask you really parenthetically here. So you mentioned the first Slash 5 uh, bike you saw was in Venice. Um, tell me a little bit about living in Venice around that time, I guess. Um, I mean... I was right when the Slash Fives came out. That's the year I was born, so I'm dating myself here. Uh, but all that being said, um, that was a kind of a unique time in music and, and cultural history. How did you fit into all that back then? Well, it was uh, very, very weird. <laughs> take too much time up on No, that's fine. But maybe a few comments on it. I'm curious as to your thoughts. Okay. Uh, I lived in West Los Angeles with my parents up until I was 14 and a half. And then with disagreements over with my folks, such as my motorcycle collection, which was suddenly growing, <laughs> and going to high school. And then in, in high school, I was also going to UCLA at the same time. That's another story. Uh, I... Uh, was really sort of a rambunctious kid, rebellious too in a lot of ways. And I had a, an uncle, my father's brother actually, and uh, he uh, was the general manager of the Pacific Ocean Park Pier. And he had a key, to, obviously, to the Pacific Ocean Park Pier. So after hours, it wasn't open late then, after hours I could take girlfriends or guys that I knew or their girlfriends too, and we had the run of the pier, okay? And at the same time period, roughly, I got a, a uh, job working very part-time at the uh, beach lifeguard. Uh, I had my little lifeguard shack, which was really just stairs and a little tiny cover over it, really, at that time, down. And it was right on the border between Santa Monica and Venice at the beach, and Santa Monica and Venice at that time sort of feuded about who had that piece of land right there. Where was the border? I, had a, I never did really dig into it, but apparently they had a, a really a thing about it. And I managed to get paid uh, a little over a dollar an hour from each one, from Venice and from Santa Monica. So I started off double dipping early. <laughs> Good for you. Muscle Beach was to my left. And Santa Monica was to my right when I was sitting up there. And uh, it's quite possible that there were some BMW motorcycles uh, down there at that time. I didn't actually see any of those until later and didn't have my hands really on them uh, until I worked for Wingleman's. Well, I also, and I promise we won't talk about this too much, but I also just think of all the great music that was around uh, oh. that, that time as well. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Venice Beach uh, in the late 60s or around that time is The Doors. Yeah, and I'm talking about 50s. And oh, oh, okay, yeah. 
And uh, it's absolutely true. And uh, Venice was a real uh, collecting and connecting place. I, uh, uh, we don't probably have the time for me talking about the Malibu House and some other things that I got involved with when musicians. But that was the place. And it was full of Bohemians, and it was the beatniks were around all over the place, and every other sort of, of anything you want to talk about. It was a generation of experimentation, and there was a lot of marijuana coming across the Mexican border, and there was a lot of music down on the beach, and of all sorts of music. And uh, yeah, it was a time that I remember very fondly. Uh, down there. Motorcycles and beach babes seem to mix together. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you just, yes, you presented uh, a great visual uh, image there. Uh, that, that... One other thing about that. Yeah, yeah, please. When I, was, when I was down there all that time, we still had two canals. You know, it's called Venice for a reason. We still had two canals going down Venice. Uh, well hidden from the beach, actually. It was a couple of blocks behind. And many, many people thought there might be canals someplace and never managed to find them or never knew where they were. And so we had these canals. And uh, we also had, uh, this was long before the Marina del Rey was ever built, we had some oil wells opposite Hughes Aircraft. Hughes Aircraft was uh, a little more southerly uh, down from the beaches and then inland a little bit. And around those oil wells, there was a big depression uh, in the terra firma, uh, and we used to that's do our initial dirt riding down hmm. there. Uh, basically, on the extension of Marina del Rey, what it is right now, we used to ride dirt right there, right where the sailboats are right now. Wow. Wow. That's something else. Some yeah, neat... Some, some, some really neat memories there. Um, yes. I, well, that's good. I'm glad we dipped into those for a little bit, and maybe that's something we can visit on another uh, on at another time. I first became a regular customer with Boxer Two Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90s. William and Edward Plam's video repair series. Well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. And shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans. And as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Uh, and I would encourage folks uh, who have to do visit your website. Uh, there is some great biographical information um, and lots of fun stuff to read through on there. Let's circle it back uh, <clears throat> to motorcycles here. 
I mentioned uh, just a little bit ago there that you've got a, a pretty extensive electronics background. Um, you did a lot of work in electronics uh, for a number of years. So, and you sort of alluded to that uh, with uh, working with Butler and Smith uh, back in the day. So tell me how you sort of got involved with them. I guess it sounds like you were sort of a, a rogue repairman. Is that a, a term I could use there, or what was your what was your job? Well, you know, that's not too far off. Okay. Uh, my association with Butler and Smith was, uh, I don't want to say it was near zero, okay, but my association with Butler and Smith was very minimal. Butler and Smith was, was the distributor for BMW in the East, and in the West Coast was Flanders Company. Now, Flanders Company still exists, but... Uh, and just as a side note, when I ran at Bonneville, uh, Earl Flanders, the head, uh, he's long dead now, was my timer for the AMA of my record run. But I had most of my dealings with Flanders, not Butler and Smith. Of course, there never was any real Mr. Smith and Mr. Butler. That was just the cross streets. But uh, I strangely, very strangely, later... I started having dealings with BMW North America because I had so many friends working there, and I'm not going to even drop any names because I started working for them uh, almost under the counter. And I had done the same thing with Butler and Smith in a strange way uh, and Flanders. Uh, and I was a roving, let me help you with that problem. For And I used to travel around up and down the whole West Coast helping BMW dealers with their problems, and they were invariably electrical back in the Slash 5 days. So I knew a lot of people in a lot of the dealerships, and I was getting paid by Flanders, and actually uh, the money indirectly came first of all from Butler and Smith, and uh, it's, uh, it was really strange. I needed an interesting job, and that was... Uh, going to augment uh, and pay for some of my schooling. <laughs> so I had quite a, an interesting time of it back then. So were they sort of paying you on an hourly basis, or they would cover your expenses, uh, you know, to, to travel around? How did that kind of work? Well, I was <laughs> I was traveling uh, on an R60-2 <laughs> uh, with a toolbox full of parts and some electrical test equipment. And uh, they would pay me my mileage if I asked for it, but we just normally just settle on it. Okay, you go from Los Angeles up to there, and uh, uh, this is what you'll pay for. Uh, we'll pay for you, and I would then negotiate a price. And it was mostly that way, and it finally became like an employee later on. But uh, it, it was a strange situation because they didn't have anybody else doing this type of thing, and people are getting into problems, and uh, they didn't have proper books. And they finally got out some factory manuals for the Slash 5, and uh, uh, BMW's service manuals assume that you have been to the factory school. <laughs> and the factory schools in the later one, of course, were basically run by Tom Cutter. I'm sure you know him. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I never managed to get to one of those schools. In fact, I did the teaching out on the West Coast for some of the guys. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Uh, at the 
at the time the slash fives were introduced um, and where you were on the West Coast, I imagine the dealer network was both new, uh, probably somewhat understaffed, uh, somewhat overwhelmed uh, at times. And it's, it's strange for me to think uh, someone of my generation that, you know, there was not a dealer network. And that was, it sounds like that was a time when things were just maybe sort of being piecemealed, uh, fixes, fix can. Uh, but eventually, I guess that's where BMW North America sort of came in and, cl- and cleaned that up uh, a bit. Is that a fair assessment? You know, Butler and Smith and then BMW North America, the, the, there was some of that in, in both, I guess, in the beginnings of both. But uh, uh, it was helter-skelter for uh, a while in the, in the very beginning when the, when the Slash 2s were being sold uh, way back when, and it was Butler and Smith in the East and Flanders out West when the Slash 2s were actually being sold and, and into the Slash 5 generation. And uh, the BMWs were becoming a little bit more popular, but and they had the owner's booklets, which were uh, pretty informative back then. And some people were getting hold of the uh, factory service manuals, and, and the technicians were going to school on it. But it really wasn't one of these overwhelming type things where it's much more formal these days and how things are done. It, it was a bit... Yeah, that much. So we had mentioned uh, uh, in that particular time frame there on the Slash 5 Series bikes, there were no fuses. Uh, you mentioned uh, charging issues where it seemed to be pretty common. Were those? Were there any, any other things uh, you kept finding as far as reoccurring issues uh, around that time that, you know, let's say you'd go to a dealer and, uh, you know, they'd have a bike and they'd maybe get a sentence or two into the problem telling you what the problem was and you knew what it was already just because you've been seeing it so often. Yeah, it was not just charging. It was charging and starting. Mm. And then there was corrosion. Uh, it's the West Coast, okay, and salt air. And we had a lot of problems with... Uh, uh, various types of corrosion on contacts, uh, lights, and this and that, and all sorts of things. And to tell the truth, uh, back in those days, uh, and up probably uh, well into the 80s, mechanics, as we called, whether they were cars or bikes, really weren't very good on electrics. Uh, they, they, like most owners, uh, didn't understand them thoroughly. Most owners still don't. And there were a lot of problems with intermittent connections, with relays not making contacts. And, of course, there was the infamous problem with the start relay, which is really an anti-start relay on the Slash 5 and never used on any other model. We had a fix for that, but it was never known why. I didn't know any dealerships that knew anything at all about why the problem was had occurred with the, the transistor gain, but that's another little short story. So, we fix- go ahead. Yeah, we fixed that problem, and how to fix it was, uh, is on my website in its own article, but uh, I worked with uh, a very close friend of mine, Oak Oaklishan, who's uh, been dead for a number of years now. He was a master at stuff like that, and 
it was something that none of them would have ever thought of, and because uh, they didn't understand transistors. <laughs> transistors were still kind of new back in uh, 1970, right? Yeah, they really were. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the, <clears throat> that was uh, it, with that whole era. I mean, you think of not, you know the early seventies into the mid seventies of a lot of the motorcycles that were coming out at that time would later go on to sort of change the whole design philosophies and what uh, customers expected out of bikes. Uh, you know, build quality and things like that. It was uh, it was a transitional time for sure, uh, as, as you noted by that. And speaking of that and going along those lines a little bit, so let's sort of move forward in the in the timeline here, your timeline and the and the BMW motorcycle timeline. Tell me some of your impressions of how BMW was evolving uh, during that time. So as we're moving out of the slash five into the six and, and seven series, obviously you're still involved with the bikes. Uh, was your work uh, with BMW NA and dealers, con had it continued on through that series? And just talk a little bit, if you can, about how BMWs uh, were evolving during that time. Well, the bikes were constantly being impro uh, improved and little problems that, that were had been there or occurred were constantly being fixed. Uh, that's one of the big selling points, I think, of, you know, having a reliable product. But overall, I would say that with the distributors and with the dealers too, knowledge was increasing steadily. And whatever the problems were, were mostly being handled pretty directly. Although I will say that Germany uh, was not so uh, accepting of the fact that there could be anything wrong with their motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, more, it was more, there was more formality to things, uh, more literature. Um, the uh, dealers were getting microfiche that covered all the parts and all the service information that was being distributed. Uh, there was better factory manuals, uh, and this just continued on. And finally, uh, yeah, microfish was stopped, and the dealers start getting CDs. You know, that's in entering into the modern age a bit. And uh, that had to be, uh, you had to have a computer to, you know, actually <laughs> uh, get into those. And things just became more and more uh, institutionalized, where BMW was telling the dealerships how and what their dealership should look like and how it should be run. And some of the old timers were just unwilling to put a lot of money into doing that. This particularly happened with the, the uh, some of the dealerships that were only selling a very few bikes every year. And uh, BMW wanted their motorcycle dealerships to sort of be something like car dealerships, a flashy showroom, a really nice building, a really nice-looking service floor, and this and that. In other words, to be something that really, really looked nice. And yeah, building the brand image, as it were. Absolutely brand image. Yes. Yeah, yeah and that's not an uncommon story. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear you mention it uh, in relationship to, you know, the growth 
of uh, BMW back then, but I, I hear that from folks who are involved with any other type of brands, uh, you know, guys I've known that have had smaller Harley Davidson dealerships have been bemoaning that same fact for years. And a lot of folks just get, get tired of, uh, of trying to, to keep up with it. Yes, I think that's very true. They, uh, Old folks, uh, I've kept up with it pretty well, but I'm getting pretty old myself now. And, of course, I don't work for a dealership or anything. And uh, But I would say that things are, in the long run, things are probably better for the customer. But the bikes are so full of electronics these days, there are limits to what the customer can do. And that really became prominent uh, when it, about not quite before the end of the airheads. And uh, now it's difficult for uh, the private owner when they got a, a, a problem to dig into any of that electronic stuff too deeply. It's some of it uh, and analyzing things somewhat, but it's, it's gotten really off the wall. Yeah, it has. And I think... Exactly the same thing for cars. Yeah, yeah. Well, you bring up a good point, and it'll be a good transition here in a minute uh, to talk about your website, but you're entirely correct. I think the allure uh, of the Airhead series, uh, the Type 247 engine, uh, for guys like me, you, and you know, most men and women who are into the bikes is the fact that there are still parts available. Uh, most of the systems uh, you can work on yourself. And when you're in over your head, thankfully, there are still a lot of specialists uh, available where you can send a transmission or send your heads off to. There's a great support network there. Uh, and so I think that's helped continue uh, with the popularity of these bikes for a number of years. And I, I'm going to just be honest here. I mean, one of the big things that's helped me and a lot of owners uh, is your website. And let me just say, this is the first time I've had a chance to visit with you. Uh, let me just say thank you on behalf of myself and many other people uh, for taking the time uh, to, to build that. Um, I want, and let's, let's get into that. So uh, the first thing I just want to ask you about uh, on that is you launched it uh, in the late 90s. Uh, was this sort of the impetus for this was, okay, I've gathered all this knowledge. Uh, part of your personality is to annotate and, uh, and uh, as I think, uh, what was the word you mentioned? Uh, ex expatiating tendencies. Yeah, uh, I have to be verbose. <laughs> right. So I guess all of that sort of came to a head and boom, uh, although it wasn't the, the great bang, but that's kind of how the website got off the ground. Is that right? Yes, mostly. I wanted to be sure that my various notebooks and my knowledge that uh, was not in the notebooks uh, was passed on to future generations, and I wanted to be the website to be a little different than anyone else's was going to be. And from that idea, what I wanted to do was to have articles that had all the small details rather than all the gross details. I wanted one that, yeah, well, it's going to be maybe more difficult to wade through an article, but everything you wanted to know about any particular subject was on that website. 
and I did, I think, pretty good at it. But it, like I say, it's verbose. So I realized later on I'd have to make a few simple articles, and I started in making some simple ones, too. Yeah, and the great thing about it is I was talking with uh, Jeff, our producer, and it sort of explaining to him the, the website and why it's so valuable. And you bring up a great point there. I, I sort of view it as uh, really uh, the detailed addendum to any sort of shop manual or sort of known procedural technique. Uh, and then when you really get into the weeds, that's when I end up going uh, to your website and, f you know, finding a lot of those details that just are not available anywhere else. I think that's really been uh, one of the big services to me, and I know a lot of other folks uh, out there that use it. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. I'm curious, though, what what have you found to be some of the more, you know, I don't know if you're able to track this, but, you know, as far as useful articles and, and uh, contributions on, on the website, what, what it, or feedback you get from folks, what are they finding most useful uh, on your site? Boy, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, there's Google advertising at the top of almost every page on my website. Yeah. That provides a little tiny bit of income for the testing and stuff I do. And just using that, uh, which could be faulty on which uh, pages are used the most, I can pretty much tell every single month I get reports, and on a daily basis, actually, if I want to look at them from Google. And so I know what people are looking at, and there's a lot of looking at electrics, a lot of looking at the <laughs> paints. Really? People are, are repainting, and they want to know uh, the finer details about the paints, the colors, the codes, what huh. they really mean. Uh, it, it's just really all over the place like that. Uh, I don't find uh, people really 
looking a lot for how to overhaul your transmission or your rear drive uh, or to put, take a crankshaft in or out or anything like that. Uh, there are occasionally people that are searching for stuff like that. But uh, Interesting. You know, I, I, n- I never would have guessed that paint searches would be higher up on the list. Uh, it's, it surprised me, but it's been consistently true for years. And uh, some of them, of course, in a lot of looks at the ignition articles, where there's about six or seven. And um, it's just how life is, I guess. But it's available. The one thing I think I should mention about that website, since we're talking about it, there is a search function on that website. I hope Google doesn't ever uh, play with their end of it too much, and, uh, and, and it just, I don't want to ever have it disappear, really. Uh, the, it's based on Google uh, going through and indexing everything that's in my site. And Google does it for me, and if somebody can just bring up that search page, they can look for you know, one, two, three words, and that page will meet when you know when you click with your mouse or this on the screen will immediately bring up a little bit of google advertising at the top and various sources and then all the stuff that's on my website that pertains to the subject you're looking for and it is a very powerful search engine it's a lot better than the one i tried to design for myself so you're that's your advice that's your advice to the folks who are either uh new users or returning users uh is that search function yeah, and there's one other thing I want to mention, because this has come up recently and we're still trying to figure out how to fix it. All my website articles have a name. And if, uh, for instance, let's say the ignition article, uh, it's HTTPS colon two forward slashes BMW Motorcycle Tech dot info forward slash and then the name of the article. Right. When I did this website, uh, I didn't know everything there was to know about uh, websites, that's for sure. Still don't. But I capitalized some letters and uh, make them easier to just flash on the screen and be able to be read and didn't capitalize others and didn't realize that computers respond to anything after that that, uh, slash, after the domain name. And I... (laughs) So if somebody goes after forward slash ignition and the I is capitalized, they will get the ignition article or the oil article. Uh, but if they have a lowercase, they won't find it. It will return a 404 error. That found. Now, this isn't overwhelming and found on the site. But copy, my suggestion is to copy the address of the page you're looking at. Keep it as a bookmark if you wish or however. Right. I copy what I put it near the top of the page as the address, and uh, don't try to type it in yourself, so you won't mess up. That'll keep most people out of trouble. Okay, that makes sense. And now, tell me if I've been, uh, if I'm leading folks astray here. A lot of times, what I'll do is just in the basic Google search engine, I'll just type "snowbum," and then whatever I'm looking for, <laughs> and it comes up pretty quick that way too. That is true. It does. The search engine, however, the way it's incorporated into my site uh, is more powerful. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Now, I wouldn't, I'm not a journalist by trade, by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think I would be doing uh, my job correctly here. 
Tell me about your the design, the fonts, uh, and all that stuff that people seem to gripe and moan about. I don't. It doesn't bother me at all. But uh, do you still get comments about wondering why you've got you know size seven red font here and different yellow backgrounds there, or do you even care? Well, I do care. Uh, back when I was uh, building the website initially. I was using colors for emphasis. Yeah. And I did get complaints about the too many changes in fonts and too many colors. And so over a period of years, because it takes time, there's a, there's a couple of hundred articles in that on my site. Over a period of years, I have been changing that, and there's uh, very little of that actually left anymore. And so that's pretty much uh, a dead issue. There'll be some title changes uh, that are maybe in color and large, and definitely larger fonts. And there's usually three fonts. The main font, which is usually a, 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 a size four. And uh, But the thing is, people have their browsers set all sorts of different ways and how they display. And uh, on one browser, like, uh, you know, it, it will display small uh, font, and on the same article uh, on, let's say, Google Chrome, it'll display uh, more like the original. And so that can be handled by people knowing how to zoom their browser and, uh, for fonts. And I've never found any, anything that really worked absolutely perfectly. I did put some code in my articles uh, to make it more compatible with uh, uh, mobile devices. And if every single article has got the, the code for the viewport up at the top so that they'll display on handheld devices. But I've never been able to handle that uh, font situation and fix it so that everybody liked it. Mm -hmm. so I, after cleaning up, uh, and I still do some cleanup on, on the fonts and colors now and then, but most of the site's already been converted back over to what works. This is especially so uh, when I uh, started putting some of uh, my articles on the airheads.org website. And uh, at the same time, I updated my fonts at the same thing. So they're pretty much the standard types of font news now. Yeah, okay. and let, let me jump in and say, yeah, I've noticed that because I'll check if I'm reading an article, I'll check out the on the bottom there and see when it was last updated. And that's how often a note you'll make there, you know, cleaned up for clarity or something along those lines. Yeah, and uh, clarity can also be, uh, you know, uh, how I say something so that maybe I think or somebody has noted, hey, you know, this this. I don't understand what you really meant by the by this particular paragraph. It's, and they'll tell me what it what it is and what's not uh, what's confusing. Um, and the overall, the website's been pretty stable. I do work on it every week, but it's been pretty stable. I use a 14-point aerial type in most everything that I do. It's either bold or not bold. And uh, there used to be a lot of Times New Roman in there uh, or Calibri. And uh, Calibre, because it uses less things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the people, the people, the people spoke. The people spoke on uh, on some of the font and things like that, and you and you listened. So anyway, go ahead. Fair enough. Yeah. So um, I also want to ask, kind of along those lines, uh, have there been 
controversial articles uh, or things that you've posted where you've gotten uh, a lot of pushback from folks? No. Surprisingly, huh? Huh? That's always surprised me. I thought there was going to be some really big pushback on some of the things um, that I had written, and it surprisingly did not happen. For example, what what were you expecting something like that on? One of them was there was an article that I wrote uh, and continually updated almost on a daily basis about uh, an unfortunate incident that happened with the chairman of the board of directors for the uh, club, and uh, I expected a lot of nasty feedback on that, and it didn't happen. Hmm. And um, uh, I, I don't understand why not, because there's such a variety of people uh, back and backgrounds for those people that look at my site. I know how many look at it every month, about 15,000. But uh, been an, uh, there's been the occasional uh, comment, and the, uh, there's something else that, that's always uh, surprised me. I get uh, reports from Google and from the server that runs the uh, website on people that are not finding what they're looking for. And that is mostly tied into because maybe they're using WordPress and they're looking for WordPress articles or more often, it's uh, either that or, I should say, it, it's either WordPress things like that, or they're looking for articles and they are using the wrong spelling or syntax for the name of the article. And I prominently say in my website in various places, hey, you got a problem? Contact me, and here's where you can find my email address. And I haven't gotten one in hmm. the last year or two. That surprises me. That is surprising. Uh, yeah, because, yeah. Thanks for the website. Okay, and occasionally somebody gets me one and you know, writes me a comment, hey, you really need a, <laughs> a comma, or that's the wrong part number. And boy, do I like those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, uh, yeah, I mean, I see that at the uh, at the bottom of the uh, pages sometime or, you know, yep. Uh, yep. inviting folks to do that. So, okay, well, I mean, that just tells me uh, it's been, you know, curated and, and reviewed and looked over a number of times. So uh, that's, you're on the right, you're on the right track there. I want to say website's been up for over 20 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, a lot of folks are wondering what's the future of this web page uh, going on. So I know now recently when I've logged on, I see the vintage uh, BMW motorcycle owner's logo at the top. And you mentioned that you've also got some of the articles uh, archived on the airheads.org site. So tell me about partnering up with those two uh, clubs and sort of what the what the future is for this. Okay, this, this will, I'll try to make this pretty quick. Sure. We had this problem with the chairman uh, and a couple of supporters on his board of directors. And during this period of time, things got pretty nasty. And the membership of the airheads.org uh, group, the club itself, okay, uh, dropped off. And it was the primary source for airhead knowledge besides the uh, airheads list on the internet. 
which is actually very immediate and has a lot of good people on there. So I contacted them. I'd always had some articles on their website, and I said, hey, I'll add a bunch of things to it, make it more valuable to you, uh, and I'll uh, edit some of my articles and put them on uh, your site uh, to help uh, the membership roles. And they agreed, and that's what I did there. As I got older and older and started having some medical problems and so on, I decided that I really needed a website group that were going to be around a very long period of time that had a different way of looking at things in the club and were unlikely to have uh, the so-called club's website uh, change hands and change the way they were doing things so often. And there had been three changes uh, over the years that were massive and some smaller ones, and I didn't like them too well. So I... The Vintage Club and I got together, and I signed a contract with them, basically, an agreement, uh, informal, and uh, but it's binding. When I pass away, or at any time that I say so before that, they get my website with the copyrights removed. So they basically own my website, okay? And they generously offered to host my website, which got me out from under the thumb of GoDaddy, who was my host. GoDaddy still handles uh, a little tiny bit of a thing like regist uh, the registry for uh, the website and, uh, domain. But, um, but other than that, uh, the Vintage Club is going to get my website. That's really the easy way to say what it is. They will have the rights to all my articles, uh, and they will basically own the copyrights or the copyrights will be removed and they'll make them for themselves, whatever way you want to look at it. They have the website. It's theirs after I pass away. Are you... It, do you know that, that sort of thing in various ways, hosting other people's websites for quite a lot of other BMW stuff, including very early models. They handle everything from the first BMW... Uh, uh, well into the later BMW stuff, and they're going to be the source for BMW information. And uh, they publish a great magazine and blah blah blah. And uh, I'm a, I'm I'm a member there as as well of, uh, as on Airheads. Let me ask you. I want to ask you two follow up questions on that. <clears throat> the first one is: I think a lot of folks are wondering: uh, Is your website going to end up behind a paywall at some point? I don't know. It's up to them whatever they do. Uh, it could very well be behind a paywall or not behind a paywall. I don't even know what it is right now because it's hosted by them. It's accessible by them from the banners that is top of every page on my website. There's the, the Vintage Cups banners, and you can click on it. And if you're not a member and you can get through and see my stuff, well, there's my site. But if, is it going to stay that way forever? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of folks are, um, you know, sort of. I don't. I don't even know how to do this, but uh, I've read, you know, where people are sort of copying or making an archive for their own personal use on, on their computer. Do you have feelings on that? Uh, I don't really mind at all that people are making uh, copies 
okay, to keep. I happen to know of two dealerships that have copied my entire website and printed it and have it as a sort of, they <laughs> told me, this is our Bible right here, uh, which really pushed my ego to the limits. I mean, it, my head was going to explode with with uh, excessive <laughs> ego hormones. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, I don't know. Um, whoever does that does not get the latest information because I work on this thing weekly. We find little tiny errors, uh, little things where things should be cleaned up, and uh, it's sort of like a life's work, if you will. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know. My guess is that uh, anybody that's working on one of these bikes in uh, a few years from now is going to probably want to go to the Vintage Club, whether they have to pay for a membership or not, and uh, my site will be there in all its glory with a few changes. Uh, probably uh, they have a very good webmaster there, and he's been of help to me, that's for sure, because I don't know too much about server-level stuff. And uh, it'll be there'll be some changes to, you know, maybe they'll remove everything that had to do with me personally and so on from my site, and that's fine. But it'll be there, all that technical knowledge, and... As long as the club exists, it will be in perpetuity. That is our agreement in writing. That's good. Did you talk with them or discuss about who would be the technical advisor or updater, uh, if that's such a word, uh, when you're not around? Uh, Yeah, it's going to be probably be the uh, webmaster for whenever and however. Uh, We didn't set that up formally, but... uh, their webmaster is a very knowledgeable guy, and he's done some wonderful things with that site, uh, and uh, is doing a wonderful job for me. And uh, he gets on things. So and, uh, let me be clear. Let me. President, where is a go-to guy too? So let me be double clear on that. So really, what I'm asking is, as far as tech. Um, updates, um, somebody wants to, I mean, are there going to be submissions that'll be reviewed, um, you know, to update information? I mean, really, at this point of the game, I mean, you know, is there any new news in, you know, setting the valves? I don't, you know, I don't know, but I mean... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll be dead. <laughs> and, I and I haven't made an agreement... <laughs> Whether from the grave or not, <laughs> oh, that's going to be done. Okay. I want to leave on the broadest possible leeway uh, and not put a bunch of restrictions on them. Uh, they know what I've got. They know what they're getting. And uh, I, you know, the way it's written up, they're going to leave their <laughs> – the way it's written up now, and I don't expect that to change, Yeah, they're not going to change anything that has to do with my tech. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's that's the quote of the day there, Snowbum. I'll be dead. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I would expect that if somebody gets hold of them and says, hey, this part number, so on and so forth, isn't correct because BMW has changed the part number or this or that or something, they'll look into that and say, okay, and put a note in there. Maybe they'll put it in big red uh, <laughs> anti-striped letters or something. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Let me, uh, I want to touch uh, on, on this and then uh, get you out of here on a few bullet point 
uh, quick fire questions. You you mentioned airheads.org, uh, the Airheads Club, vintage BMW motorcycle owners. Um, there's also BMW uh, motorcycle owners. There's, you know, various clubs and, and things like that. Um, I Just some of your thoughts on when the personalities and politics get in the way of the wrenching and talk about the motorcycles. I'm not asking you for specific details or anything, but that that seems to be a co- a common issue I run into. I don't get involved in it, but I just see it sort of happen frequently, and it gets a little frustrating uh, from somebody like me who tries to stay on the outside. And you can imagine how frustrating it is for me. Yes. I have been a moderator and still am a moderator uh, on uh, the Airheads list, and we have just been going through a, a, a bit of a problem between t- basically two members, uh, and I sometimes have to crack down. That's sort of how the how clubs are. It destroys some clubs, uh, but luckily my fellow moderator and I seem to see uh, eye to eye on things like that, and uh, the Airheads list has been going on for a very long period of time and uh, it'll probably continue for a very long period of time and we have some very knowledgeable people on it and uh, some of whom uh, I think you probably interview or are going to interview and there are forum styles on uh, there's a, a forum style uh, uh, information available on, you know, I, I'm not much on forum styles, but there's one on the airheads.org. There's one on BMW Motorcycles of America. Uh, there's a forum style. Uh, and there's a, a access to the old big club. Uh, God, I'm having a senior moment. I can't think of it right now. Uh, sorry. The MOA? Uh, not MOA. That's the one I just mentioned. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, those are fairly minor, especially BMW MOA. It's got one thing on an airheads and so on. But for people that want technical information and they want it right away, either the same day or the next day, or whatever, the airheads list is probably the best source because of who's on it and the fact that there are quite a number of members that hang out there. And... There's other clubs around the world. Uh, there's so much information out there. The Internet, uh, you know, uh, the Internet can be really, really good for things, and it can be rather rotten for other things. Facebook is particularly a rotten place for some things. Uh, technical knowledge. Uh, a lot of people just want to get on there and sort of either vent or, uh, you know, it's, so, uh, it's a social gathering, and I can say anything I want to say, even if I don't have a BMW, you'd be surprised how many I've traced down that, <laughs> that get on a, a list and start talking and know, know what a BMW really is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the one from Australia is pretty good and interesting, and, uh, but I don't think I want to get into specific No, right no. Now. Lord knows I've been exposed to enough of those, and I, uh, if I look in the mirror, I see another one. <laughs> well said. Well, I just mentioned that because, you know, I th- it's not unique uh, in any stretch of the imagination uh, to fans of the motorcycle, to any particular airhead club. Uh, I think a lot of that is just unique t- 
to the uh, internet forums and and chat rooms and the and the human condition, as it were. Uh, I mean, you just run into those things everywhere. I think one of the things that maybe we're sort of skirting around here, yeah, is what is the future of clubs and what's the future of such uh, as the Airheads Beaver Club or let's say anything to do with Airheads? Yes, and. Um, I see it getting to be more, more towards a peaky type thing, and maybe then drifting down smaller and smaller. And a few of them are going of these various clubs around the world for Airheads, for instance, are going to uh, fade away, and there'll be fewer of them, but more concentrated ones, and it'll be much more of a very specialist hobby area. Uh, over many, many years to come. I really would expect that 30, 40, 50 years from now, there'll still be Airheads Club around. Uh, and uh, look at the popularity of what uh, Vetch, I think you know who Vetch is. Yes, indeed. Uh, does, and working on those really old bikes. But you don't see those bikes on the road every day. And you do see Airheads on the road rather often. So considering how many were built... And uh, it's uh, just how life is. Things People will start collecting and not writing them. And this particularly ha- uh, happens to older folks that I know people that have got one uh, in their living room. It, it looks nicer than re- firing up their fireplace so they blank off the fireplace or something like that. And they got an airhead in their living room all shiny and polished up. And they go over there and put a rag to it every day. And... Uh, Maybe they uh, even take it out or something or other, or they have a couple more of them or a dozen and, and go in parades and stuff like this. And uh, it's, the whole hobby gets, and I'm using hobby and purpose, tends towards that. And then there's some hardcores, uh, like me, that are just road the darn things. And uh, I think it sort of spreads into maybe three sides, that sort of a midland little group that sort of nards now and then, uh, and a, a historic vehicle ownership that maybe gets ridden once in a great while, and those that are still ride, 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 ride. And I think that'll be what we'll see in about another 20 years. Now, that's interesting, and I will say, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, one of the reasons we're you know doing this interview and producing this podcast series is to help uh, sort of usher the next generation, folks my age who were born uh, when the Slash Fives were born uh, and folks younger than me um, to, to keep the conversation and the dialogue uh, alive. That's one of the reasons we were having this conversation and, and why we put the podcast together. I assume that. Yes, yes. Well, your assumption was correct. Um, all right. Anything else on, on, on that? Any other thoughts uh, before we uh, get to these last few questions? Um. No, I think uh, we're getting there. Okay, good. Uh, all right. So <clears throat> I, if you've got your little questionnaire that I sent you, I've got a few little bullet points here of the sort of questions I've been asking everybody uh, that's been doing this. Uh, and then I have one here that's maybe specific to you. So uh, Snow Bums, Mount Rushmore of Airheads, your top four uh, BMWs of all time. Oh, boy. <laughs> I put a big question mark uh, on that. Uh, I don't think I can answer that. 
because there were so many that uh, I appreciated a lot. There were so many that I didn't never have owned. Uh, I think the top BMW of all time is probably the ones that I that I had in my garage and I was riding. <laughs> all right. Well, let's answer it, Len. That's a fair uh, answer. I understand. What about maybe um, of of the bikes you've owned, which I'm just assuming I don't know how many you have, but just tell me a couple of, the, of your favorites then that you've owned. Okay, I like my RTs, all of them. But the last BMW I owned before I stopped riding, and I stopped riding in the middle of 2019, I thought it was about time, I had a 1995 R100 RT. I liked that bike. It did everything really nice, and it outhandled most of the rest of them, even stock mode. It's handled nice. It was comfortable, pretty easy to work on. Uh, it, I never found an unstable in, moment with that bike, and it didn't have a stabilizer of any type on it. I thought BMW had it together on their last bike, and I thought, you know, I rode one. I liked it. I found one. I bought it. <laughs> was that the uh, the classic uh, black and gray model? No, it was red. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Now I remember that seeing that on your website. Yep, I liked that bike, and uh, the, I also liked uh, way back when uh, that R80 ST. Uh, I liked the first R80 GS. It was fun in the dirt, and that was the beginning of. Uh, the essentially the adventure bike era, which BMW really did bring about. I mean, there were a lot of private, we call them privateers, uh, that sort of built up their own bikes from various other bikes, you know, and especially the English ones, which were quite competent uh, way back when. And, you know, back when Steve McQueen, for instance, was riding and we were all riding down in the beaches and so on. But those weren't produced by the factory and you take them out of the box and go ride. Those were heavily modified more than most people think. And uh, I still like the English bikes, but uh, the BMWs are so comfortable, they're so competent, and they handle everything except the extremes really well, and they're quiet. Yeah, you mentioned your last bike, the RT. Um that whole that last of the Airheads run, you know, I owned uh, I've owned a few Mystics uh, R100 Mystics over the years, two different ones, uh, and some some people, especially with the Mystics, will give that you know sort of the quote unquote parts bin moniker. You know, they s slam some parts on there from other bikes, from K bikes, and you know, to that I say whatever. Uh, it worked, um, but. It was a Yes, and it was a disguised GS. It worked well. Yeah, yeah, it worked great. I, I, the, my only complaint about that particular bike was, you know, I'm just a, a touch over six feet, and it was a little small. Uh, yeah. It was a little bit small for me. But, no, I understand why you really liked uh, your, your last RT. I mean, and really, if you think about it, at the end, sadly, by the time, I don't want to say they had figured everything out, but, um, you know, those not those last '90s models, uh, everything had gotten ironed out, and then all of a sudden, well, we're done making them. You know, yeah, it was disappointing. It was disappointing. <laughs> everything pretty much got ironed out by actually by 1985, and there were just little some little tiny things left after 1985. And 
I've done a, a rather a large amount of miles, not as many as quite a few people, but I've done some miles. And I've been to Alaska, and you know, I lived in California, and I've uh, been to Alaska seven times. And uh, I always picked one of the RTs because it gave you some weather protection, and they were reliable and easy to work on. And I never had any problems. But then again, to be honest, uh, I was pretty serious about regular maintenance on the bikes. That's why I didn't have problems. Well, that can't be understated, can it? Uh, no. And the maintenance doesn't have to be anything super special that uh, only Snowbum knows and only he does, and he's probably there every 10 minutes doing something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely it's not true. It's just the regular normal things and, of course, checking out those electricals and a very fine you know, with, literally with a five-inch magnifying glass, I went over the uh, the bike every six months. Yeah, well, I I, I do that frequently. You know, I'll, I'll mention this just as a personal note. You know, where I live here in the Ozarks in Arkansas, so I don't have a paved driveway, and I have three water crossings to get to my house. Uh, <laughs> so I don't have a clean motorcycle uh, after every ride, uh, and at first I found that kind of to be a pain, uh, but I've tried to make uh, lemonade out of the lemons there and realized that, you know, a- after every ride or two, I'll just go back and wipe the bike down uh, and clean it, and you'd be surprised at the little things that I find that need attention uh, that I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise, uh, just yep. from taking the time to just to wipe the bike down and clean it. So I, un- I understand what you mean. Yep. All right. Uh, snow bombs. One big change in the Airhead model, you could go back in time and make it not happen, uh, you know, a circlip, um, whatever, what would that be? Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. There's been two things that uh, BMW did, not just one, that I would like to go back and fix. Okay. If I had a chance to go back and uh, and put my finger on those engineers over at BMW. Uh, we have the 1981 uh, through 84 wrong valve seats. And, yeah. Uh, and why was that particularly troubling for folks who don't know? Because they had a, a good system to start with, and when uh, they should have known, they were, these people are engineers, they should have known that they had the wrong valve seats. Uh, when they changed over for the for a white gas or uh, unleaded, was it partly the metallurgy too? It was the metallurgy. Okay. And uh, I'm not sure about you know thinking back over it. What else would be put in the transmission circlip? I've always thought that that was a big boondoggle. There's so many, and there was so many changes made to the transmissions inside that they've almost gotten to be a super specialist job now. You got people like Tom Cutter and so on, and uh, Anton and uh, a few others that really know how to work on those things. And um, that was a real problem. I'll just call it the so-called circlip problem, but it, there was a lot of other things that went along with the whole thing. I would like to go back and make changes to how Getrag made those transmissions. Um, the five speeds. Yeah. You know, I've, I've often, let me jump in here. I've often wondered uh, if there was somebody at BMW Motorcycle 
in Germany who was responsible for that decision and if they ever felt remorse and, and lost sleep over it. Well, you know, I don't know. There's some changes <laughs> that went along that people have always complained about BMW's transmission shifting because it made a clunk. Yeah. Now, the people that are complaining were usually not the owners, although new owners would complain, maybe, that are new to the BMWs even 20 years later, 30 years. But the press didn't like it. And the, and the press, for instance, also didn't like the jack shafting that went on with the type of uh, suspension that the later bikes had. So BMW, BMW brought out the mono lever and then the paralever, and the paralever stopped all that, and the press was happy. Okay. So it, it, it's really, I don't know, it's, it, it's really difficult to put my finger. There's so many changes that were made on the basic bike from between 19, uh, the end of 1969 in December when the bike was first produced and 1995 and a few into 1996. All those years, BMW made this airhead motor with a lot of changes on the frames. I mean, everything got changed over and over except the basic crankcase. Uh, uh, it was still the basic crankcase, but there were some changes there, too. But on the transmissions, you, if you have the right oil in them, the right grade of oil in them, and... And the transmissions are put together properly and everything else. They shift in a certain way that BMW intended to have them shift and approved with Getrag, who makes BMW transmissions. If you change something, those gears don't spin down and slow down, for instance, or speed up at the same rate. So they clash more than they would otherwise. And you can make some pretty smooth shifting if you know about it and how to do it. And that type of knowledge gets passed around. Preload the shift lever, for instance, is very common to hear about in around the bonfires. And uh, I would have liked to have seen the transmissions uh, made uh, somewhat differently and shifted somewhat differently. I mean, we're talking about a premium motorcycle. I would like to see synchros in it, for instance. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I... I, I hear that and see that from a lot of new owners uh, when they buy and they, they're experienced motorcyclists, but they buy an airhead for the first time. And, you know, they're wondering what the hell is going on with this transmission? Is it broken? Uh, no, you know, it's not broken. You're just not used to it. And it does it. There's a bit of a learning curve there, um, especially, uh, I would say, on the, you know, even on the earlier models, the Slash 5 and Slash 6 compared to others. Uh, yeah, Fives had those four-speed transmissions, and there wasn't anything basically wrong with four-speed transmission, uh, except a uh, Kickstarter shaft, which really needed to be secured a little bit better. That's an easy fix. I did it to all the flash fives I had and told customers how to do it, and it's still on my website, what to do with pictures. But that's nothing. That was the five-speed that was the big change. Yeah, it was. All right, next one, uh, Snowbomb's Best or worst, roadside repair, meaning some repair you did that was just spectacular that you did with um, uh, a bobby pin and duct tape, or your worst breakdown? My worst breakdown? Mm. Well, I never had a really bad 
breakdown at all. Uh, there was one day when I got uh, four punctures in the same rear tire uh, and uh, finally found the problem. That was a weird one. However, I will relate a little tale here. Okay. Now, remember, remember, I never had a, one of those big, big problems, okay, that you're asking about. All right. But, but I purchased a brand-new airhead from a dealership I previously had little uh, contact with. And uh, that doesn't mean anything. It, was, it had nothing to do with this particular dealership. That wasn't it. And I think this particular airhead, which was happened to be another R75-5, I owned a number of them, uh, they were, the dealership was running a sale. And I thought, well, you know, I've never seen them. They're in Southern California. They've never called me for any help with anything else. And so I'm going to go over and see what's going on and what the prices really are. What the hell, I need, I need a, a nice ride today. So I go over to that dealership, and I parked my motorcycle there. Which was at the time what? Uh, another R75. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they can't have too many motorcycles. No, 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 no. And I bought a brand new one. Okay. And... I left the dealership and uh, jumped on a nearby freeway. And I didn't get 10 miles before the left cylinder cracked all the way around the base and the cylinder came about an inch off the engine. Yeah, the whole cylinder. Wow. And that ended my ride. That was not a pleasant day. It was one Monday morning special and they hadn't finished off the cylinder uh, correctly, as near as we can tell. So I had to wait until they got another bike to replace that one. <laughs> and I had a kind of sour taste about BMW and its workmanship at that point. I'd never heard of another one except, uh, I think it was, it was Tom, I can't remember. I heard of another one. No, it was from Oak that told me that he'd heard of another one that had done that because uh, it hadn't been finished machined. That was the worst thing that ever happened, to have a cylinder just pop right off the... the, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the engine case. Um, but I have never had any real serious problems other than a few tire uh, flats. And believe it or not, in all the miles I've gotten, I haven't had very many flat tires. Wow. Yeah, if I remember, didn't you get like the 600,000 mile award or something? I did. Yeah. And I have, uh, before I quit, I had, near as I can tell, about 659,000 miles on, on uh, BMW motorcycles. I never kept track of my race miles, just, it was just the BMW miles. And um, I do have the 600,000 award. And uh, I had all the other uh, ones they award you at 100,000, two, three, four, and five, and so on. They went with uh, my bikes when I sold them that they were mounted to. I let the new owners have them. Oh, that's a nice, uh, nice piece of history to go along with the bike. Yep. And... Um, but uh, that's about it, I think. Um, I still love the bikes. I still love to have the room here to have one uh, so I could, you know, keep it up and uh, ride it and so on. But I'm getting old. Yeah, well, that's understandable. All right, so I've got a note here. Um, and I'm hoping this story isn't too long. I just have the words Willie Nelson story. That's going to be a wee bit uh, longer, but I'll I'll uh, I'll <laughs> uh, I'll tell it to you anyway. Okay. 
Okay, as I remember it. I have had a electronics repair shop since I was 14 and a half years old. I still got that electronics repair shop. Okay, and it's been bigger, it's been smaller, but uh, anyway, I like to work on the old stuff, but I work on old and new, and I've got stuff actually to do this afternoon. But I was at Tahoe, where I was for since uh, 1972 and 73 to uh, the middle of 2019 uh, in my shop one day, and I get a telephone call with a guy that's got a, a uh, amplifier, and uh, it's uh, one I had never seen, never heard of it. What was uh, the brand? Do you remember? Uh, Hammond. Okay. And uh, he shows up with this amplifier. It's got a blue face on the top. It's a top control type. And it's what the uh, musicians call a combo and so on. And uh, it had been bounced around. I probably fell out of his jet or something or other and fell out of his pickup truck and who knows what. It was in bad physical condition. And it was very early transistorized unit using germanium transistors, which are very unreliable. They wanted to know if I could get it running, and I said, I can get anything running. And so I'll make this, uh, this little story short because there's a heck of a lot more to it. But uh, I said I could, and he said, the boss is going to be happy, okay, and... So I started on this thing and then got hold of them. They were, uh, he, uh, his uh, uh, boss was Willie Nelson. They were doing a show and going to be in town for two or three days or whatever. And I got on it right away and called up, told him what it needed, and asked him if he'd really like me to really restore this thing to really prime type condition. And, yep, go ahead with it. I says, but it's going to really cost you. I says, it's a lot of work to do all this. That means changing all the transistors to uh, silicon types because the transistor ones get noisy. There are a lot of old-fashioned noisy parts in it and stuff that need to be changed. you got to change the bias and all the circuitry to handle the silicon, eh, blah, blah, blah. I had to fix the case, do a lot of other work. Okay, well, I ended up doing a very, very considerable amount of work on that thing, and they were very, very happy with it. So, anyway... I go to, uh, uh, I hope this is okay to say, uh, re re relate the rest of this. Please, yeah, you free, feel free. Okay, so I'm going to deliver it to them, okay, while down at Harris Casino. And uh, I, I don't live but five miles from state line. And uh, maybe I should stay for a show is the way they put it. Okay, so anyway, he, he showed up. And because uh, I and I wanted to finish up a couple little uh, physical details, and he paid me out of a shoebox with hundred dollar bills in this thing, and I mean a lot of them, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Again, they ran their whole their whole lives off of this shoebox. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he says they'd like to have me deliver this thing, okay? And so I deliver it down there, and uh, the show hasn't uh, started. The eleven o'clock. Uh, uh, VIP show hadn't started yet, and they said, how would you like to uh, sit on stage? And I said, well, sure. Well, uh, there's that cooler over there, and they're pointing to this. I think it's an 84-quart or whatever it is. It's a huge monster, biggest Coleman cooler, you know, that you can sit on. 
and uh, you sit over there. You'll be out of sight pretty much of the audience and uh, enjoy the show and whatever. Okay, so I did this, and I was enjoying the show and blah, 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 and uh, talking with people there that I knew in the sound department and passing out business cards now and then. And uh, The show starts, and the curtain goes down, and they're getting ready to do the, the main part of the show. It's about to go up, and uh, this very leggy Las Vegas showgirl type comes over to me. See, I was supposed to be sitting on the stairs originally, and I moved over to, to this thing because I needed the stage stairs. You know what those are. And uh, she says to me, is I supposed to be with you tonight, honey? And I looked, and I said, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> The other funny part about all this is that I got to work on the second one of these things. And this uh, Hammond amplifier was extremely rare. The people at Hammond, when I went to it for parts for this other one, they did insisted we never made anything like that. And uh, I said, yes, it is. I've got one here in my shop, and I've worked one be- on one before. And they say, and I said, have you got anybody there that's you know been around a long time with Hammond that might know something about it? Well, there's this guy that retired. He's in his 80s, and uh, he lives about I think it was West Virginia, if I remember right, or Virginia. And they gave me his phone number. Can you imagine that? A phone giving me the phone number (laughs) of a apartment. That would never happen these days. No. I called this guy up, and he was very interested in what I was working on and one I'd worked on before and so on. Oh, I know about those. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we were going to do this, and we were going to do that, and then uh, the company decided it didn't want to get into musicians' electronics like that. It just wanted to sell these big, huge 10,000-pound or whatever they were, organs. And he says, I got all the parts and all the schematics and all the stuff for it. And I almost fell out of my chair. And he says, so what are you going to do? And I said, so I'm going to like the first one. I'm going to change everything to silicon, rebias, everything, and so on. But this one's got a, uh, a bad drive transformer. The transformer is open. I need a new transformer. And he says, oh, I'll, uh, I'll send you one. Well, he sent me two. And then he sent me a box of the most common part failures. <laughs> Free. Okay. And the schematics, the engineering drawings, the chit-chat between the engineering uh, uh, people on this. What a help. And uh, so that's just a side note. Uh, wow, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah, when you mentioned Hammond, the first thing I thought of was an organ. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have thought uh, that they made an amplifier. Now, I know most people, when they play a Hammond, they use a, uh, a Leslie cabinet, you know, the rotating horn cabinet. Oh, uh, I've worked on a few of those. Yeah. But let me get back to the uh, one quick follow-up. So you got paid, if I'm to get the gist of your story here, then... You got paid in cash and other goods and services? Uh, well, I got my dinner. I got my show. I had a, a, a very friendly person to spend the weekend with. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. And for a period, a long period of time, things were sent up by jet for me to work on. You imagine having your own Learjet and sending things from Texas. Austin, I think. Yeah. Uh, South Lake Tahoe. I know how much, I'm a pilot. I know how much jets cost to run. And uh, to Tahoe with a few items uh, 
for Bob to work on. Wow, that's great. What a neat, uh, what a neat story and uh, tie with Willie Nelson. I'm oh. trying to keep the story as clean as I can. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. All right. Last question. I'm throwing a, uh, a bit of a curveball here at you, but I'm asking everybody this, so I'm obliged. The question is, what oil does Snowbum run in his airhead? <laughs> <laughs> Golden Spectro 420W50. There you go. There you go. And you're not the first person uh, to mention that. Well, look, Robert, um, I really appreciate the time this afternoon. It's really been a treat talking to you, as I mentioned, having been uh, on your website so many times over the years. Uh, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you, uh, on, again, on behalf of myself and everybody else who's accessed it. Uh, you've really done a great service to the community and I just want to say continued health and success going forward. And thank you for asking me to be a contributor to your podcast. You bet. Well, that was a lot of fun catching up with Snowbum. A lot of great information, some really fun stories. Remember, you can find him uh, on the web. Just type in Snowbum BMW. And there'll be a link to that in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.